Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Pruitt, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help improve your brain health, help you feel better, and live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is Megan Telpner. Megan Telpner is a Toronto-based author, speaker, nutritionist, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Her humorous, engaging, and real approach to living an awesome, healthy life has garnered her worldwide following and extensive media attention. Megan's Academy of Culinary Nutrition is a growing global group of vibrant living advocates and her best-selling books, Undiet, Eat Your Way to Vibrant Health, and The Undiet Cookbook are creating a revolution in how people think about their health. In 2016, Megan was featured in Forbes and was ranked as one of the top 100 female entrepreneurs in Canada. Megan, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. You know, just a few weeks ago, we had your husband, Josh, on the podcast with us, and he was so incredible helping us break down the different types of diets that are out there and how functional nutrition works. And when I got curious and I started asking him about his story and how he got into us, he was saying, well, you know, I've never had like a major health issue myself, but my wife did. And that kind of like kickstarted the journey for both of us in a way through the learnings that she went through. So help us understand what that story is. From my understanding, you got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 2006. But even before that, there was the build up to that process. Uh, would love you to take us through that. Yes, absolutely. So Josh had one small detail wrong, as as men tend to when it comes to love stories. Well, well, it could be that I have the detail wrong, and I'm <laughs> thinking about the podcast incorrectly. So I wouldn't blame him. It might be me. <laughs> Josh and I actually met in nutrition school. He was the only gentleman, and I was like, he's mine. And it took me two years. Josh, as you know, you spoke with him. He's deep into his research. He had to do his research before he would commit. And so, yeah, I chased him for a couple of years. We met in nutrition school and then got together afterwards. But my story started long before nutrition school. Uh, roughly around 2003, I'd graduated from university with a degree in fashion and didn't really know what I wanted to do with that. I spent the summer doing a physical challenge as part of a fundraiser, uh, biking 500 kilometers from Toronto to Montreal. And then promptly, uh, upon completion of that, being completely physically fatigued, got a bunch of vaccinations to go travel through Africa through West Africa, Swaziland, Senegal. And before I even left, I started developing gastrointestinal issues. Mm -hmm. And the symptoms worsened while I was overseas that resulted in me coming back early and beginning a bit of a tour of doctors trying to determine what was wrong. So I can't say I was ever in perfect health. I don't know that a lot of people in, you know, in their early 20s going through university would say they're in great, ultimate, vibrant health, but it just catapulted. And so going from doctor to doctor, trying to figure out what was wrong and couldn't quite get a diagnosis. What I was dealing with was what is often referred to as subclinical. I knew something was wrong in my body. There were obviously symptoms of things that weren't quote unquote normal, but Tests just kept coming back saying you're within the normal range of this or that. And it took three years until my symptoms were so severe that I could no longer go to work. I couldn't go on the streetcar or the subway because there's no bathrooms. And with autoimmune inflammatory bowel diseases, which I didn't know I had yet, there's a huge sense of urgency to use the bathroom. So finally, in the summer of 2006, after three years, 19 doctors, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And that was 12 years ago. And, and what was that? And just, just pausing for a moment, what was that moment like when you finally felt that, you know, sometimes in those early days, especially when you're not 
aware of deeper root cause issues and how lifestyle contributes to all this stuff, sometimes just the feeling of finally getting a diagnosis can be, I mean, comforting in a way because you feel like, well, at least if I know what it is, maybe I can do something about it. What was that moment like for you when you got that diagnosis? That's exactly what it was. It was, I mean, it was simultaneously terrifying uh, because there's no cure for this, that I was facing the reality of a lifetime of unknowns and medications and potential surgeries. I didn't have my ears pierced. Like I was, a, I'm averse to pain. I've now had a baby. So I, I think I've built up my tolerance a little bit, but so it was terrifying, but also gratifying because I'd been going through all these doctors and kept being told there was nothing wrong with me. It can start to make you feel literally crazy. I was like, am I making this up? But I knew I wasn't because I was having physical symptoms and physical responses to things I was eating or uh, stressful events. And so getting that diagnosis was was gratifying. It was terrifying. And it was a little bit angering that I had been ignored for so long that I was saying there's something wrong and kept being told that, no, you don't know your body. There's nothing wrong with you. And so I let myself be sort of pissed off for, for a few days. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to need to deal with this. When the doctor said to me, there's no known cause, no known cure, nothing you do is going to affect the prognosis of your disease. His ignorance basically gave me a license to prove him wrong. And that was what I set out to do. And so I- And he was, you know, he was just telling you what he ever he had been trained in, but he just didn't know that there was another pathway forward. Exactly. And also wasn't fully open to, because I had been doing deep research all the while that I was dealing with this. I was looking at you know, and it was 2006. So there weren't blogs, there weren't a ton of books, there wasn't definitely not podcasts. So I was going to the library and looking up information to see, you know, what foods contribute to digestive upset. So right away I saw things like gluten and dairy. And so I eliminated those and I'd say, you know, I read that this works. He's like, there's no research that supports that. And then finally I'd said, you know, I've heard that acupuncture can help. And he's like, well, there's no research that supports that. I said, okay, well. Standard sort of classic answer that you get. Exactly. And there rightfully isn't research to support that eliminating dairy is going to cure Crohn's disease or any autoimmune disease. Uh, right. Nobody's done a trial on that component. And it's not ever just one thing. It's a multitude of things. So of course, there's not going to be research on just this one aspect curing an entire disease. Exactly. So what I tried to do was do everything that could potentially cure this disease. And so I knew of an acupuncturist in Santa Monica that my father had seen previously to help with rheumatoid arthritis. And I'd gone down and he'd said, I can help you. And I was like, okay. At that point, you know, after what I'd been through for three years, you know, I was 26 anyone who said they could help me, I was willing to do whatever they said. And so I went down there for a few months and started going for acupuncture. And, you know, Southern California, I ended up in a yoga class because that's what you do there. And it was the first time I'd done yoga. And through this yoga studio that I started going to every day, I was introduced to a meditation teacher. And then I started meditating. And then I went to the farmer's market and I started buying ingredients to make food. And so it was this complete revolutionary and evolutionary experience in my attempt to heal something that I had been told was completely incurable. And do you remember the acupuncturist's name? Yes. His name is Dr. Ha. And his partner, his wife is Ping. Um, their clinic's now in Venice. 
think it's like oh amazing i just have to i haven't run it. into them i haven't run into them so when i if i if i run into them i'm gonna give them a little pound and, and yeah. thank them for uh setting you off on your journey they're amazing <laughs> they're amazing people and i was just i went into this so completely naive i mean i had at most 10th grade biology so i had no concept of the body or physiology or anything even close to understanding the power of spirituality or mental well-being. I didn't know any of that. You know, we didn't grow up. We, we grew up eating pretty well, but it wasn't, you know, whole foods per se. It wasn't, you know, anything unusual or out of the ordinary. And so I think that a huge benefit I had was this naivety to what I was doing, that I didn't go into it expecting anything. I didn't know what impact my actions and learning to meditate and practicing every day. And I didn't know what all of this was was doing to me. It just felt like the right thing to do. And so I went with it. It took about two months until I was completely symptom-free. I stayed in California for three full months. By the end of it, it wasn't just that I was symptom-free from a disease I was told I would have for life, but I was healthier and happier than I could ever remember being in my entire life. I, you know, have always dealt with anxiety. I've always dealt with different types of challenges that are so common. But it was after this whole process that I'm like, oh my goodness, there's a different way to operate in the world. There's a different frequency I can live on that was just so pure and charming and delightful. And I felt great. And that was when I realized, you know, I have to figure out what I just did because everyone I'd met with three, you know, 19 doctors over three years had told me that, you know, there's nothing wrong or that I, you know, I'd have this for life and suddenly I was better. And so that was what motivated me to go to nutrition school as my first step to try and figure out what I had actually done in my body. It wasn't that I necessarily intended to have a career doing this, but I needed to learn. I wanted to know what I had done that I'd been told was impossible. And then going through nutrition school was really what motivated me to and empowered me to feel like I was going to be somebody that could then help others, that I could be the person that I needed to meet when I was suffering. And that's what sort of has propelled me into what I'm doing today. Incredible. You know, you mentioned a couple things and I want to make the link and connection for people. In addition to all the GI issues that you were having with this autoimmune condition and with Crohn's disease, you hinted towards the end that there was anxiety and a few other components. You know, people who have seen and listened to our podcast and seen our documentary, Broken Brain, they know that we have an entire episode focused on the brain-gut connection. So can you expand a little bit more uh, before we get into everything that you did and nutrition school and your journey, expand a little bit more on your symptoms. In addition to digestive stuff, what else were you noticing inside of your body, as specifically the brain? What I noticed and one of the biggest challenges I had was that I developed digestive issues as my – I would call it my primary concern. But because stool tests and blood work and everything was coming back normal – I was being told that it actually wasn't a digestive issue. It was a psychological issue. So I was told it was depression. I was told, you know, it was all of that. And I kept saying, that's not it. That's secondary. The digestive stuff came first. And now I'm depressed because I don't feel well all the time. I can't go anywhere. And I have a constant upset in this sort of the, the center of my body. And 
you know, I now know about that gut brain access and how the microbiome affects our mental health. But at the time, it was just trying to sort of state my case that no, it, it didn't start in my head. It, or rather, you know, I don't want to say it's, you know, the mental health is just in the physical head, but it didn't start as a mental health challenge. It started as a physical health challenge. And as we know, mental health challenges can affect digestion. And with that access, it works both ways. Yeah. Even though like, I think Crohn's disease, I was reading about it before, was uh, discovered discovered in a group of collection of symptoms was named in, in like the 1930s. It still was not fully understood in regular medicine. And it was considered, you know, a little bit more rarer for people to go to. And so there was plenty of doctors, not just with Crohn's disease, but other issues where sometimes if you didn't know what it was, it's like, well, it's not showing up on our test. So it must be in your head. And if you could just calm down a little bit, maybe these right. would go away. And that's the worst thing you can ever tell anyone. If someone's stressed, you tell them to calm down. Someone who's chronically stressed or chronically anxious doesn't know how to calm down because if they did, they wouldn't be chronically stressed or anxious. And we see this with grownups. We see it with children. You tell a child, you know, sit still, pay attention. Well, we don't know how to pay attention anymore. We don't know how to sit still anymore. And so when I'd be told like, oh, it's too, you're, you're under too much stress, I'm like, well, I don't know now what to do with that. I don't have the tools or the skills. And and that was a huge pivotal thing. And that's a huge thing that's still missing in most autoimmune treatments or most disease or dis-ease treatments is that psycho-spiritual component that, you know, sometimes makes people uncomfortable or is a little perhaps considered woo-woo, even though there's so much scientific research about it. But with virtually every condition, unless it's an immediate infection of some kind, there is a mental health component. With autoimmune diseases, it's not typically the laid back, go with the flow kind of person that gets autoimmune conditions. It's often sort of the the type A, fiery, heated personalities, uh, passionate and creative and, and all that that often goes with these conditions of, of autoimmune and inflammation. And without addressing the mental component to it, you you can't get healing. And that's the biggest challenge is that we want, you know, that one food or that one diet or that, you know, I'm going to meditate and that's going to fix everything. Or I'm going to get acupuncture and that's going to fix everything. But so few people are addressing the combination of root causes to resolve and have healing, whatever that may look like for the individual. So you had this healing that basically, you know, officially Crohn's disease can't be reversed, right? That's the official line. But you were living now with a massive reduction in symptoms. And now you're in nutrition school trying to piece together dots and understand what actually happened to you. And what did you learn? What kind of dots did you connect in nutrition school? So it wasn't even just a reduction of symptoms. It was a complete elimination of symptoms. And now 12 years later, there's been no recurrence or what what is called a flare-up. So am I in remission or am I, can I say I've been cured? You know, if the cells of the body regenerate 100% between seven to 10 years, depending on what you read, I'm a 100% new body today than I was in 2006 without any signs of the disease. So if I were to go today and get blood work done or any kind of test done, there'd be no sign of it. Um, there is like a lot of people in the health field have my 23andMe test and it does show that I'm 10 times more likely to have Crohn's and colitis, uh, but I have no signs or symptoms in the body. And so what I learned through 
nutrition school and then even more so, you know, in my own independent learning and and obviously being married to Josh and both of us having a keen interest in this topic and what we've discovered together was that diet absolutely plays a part in it. That, you know, there's certain foods that will exacerbate inflammation and certain foods that will help reduce inflammation. And I committed to eating on the side of foods that reduce inflammation and avoid or completely eliminate most of what could promote inflammation in the body. So that part was so simple. And then since then, you know, I did my meditation. um, I did the course so that I could learn to meditate. And I'm not as regular as I used to be now that I have a baby. It's definitely more challenging. But while I was in nutrition school, I also took a meditation course, a mindfulness meditation course for teachers to learn how to teach it. And so through all of this, I learned about how our actions, lifestyle, diet, conversations, attitude, affect on a physical level, the microbiome, how the microbiome affects our psychological well-being. So, you know, 77% of Americans say they regularly experience symptoms caused by stress. And a high amount, almost 50% experience fatigue and just over 30% experience digestive upset. So digestive upset and fatigue together are an excellent combination for impairing the immune system. And so it becomes this sort of collective journey to resolve the entire system of the body. And so it can never be just one thing. And that was a huge takeaway I got from nutrition school was that, great, all these foods are great. I know these nutrients we need to have. And I learned all that. But the missing part from nutrition school was a lot of that mental emotional component, which I then took on to learn more of. And also the actual act of cooking and creating foods. And, you know, we learn about ingredients, but ordering in every meal because there's a kale salad, we know kale's good for us, isn't the same as spending time in your kitchen, creating meals, using your senses and really paying attention to what's going into everything that you eat. And so that's what took me through nutrition school, getting that understanding of how all these systems of the body work together. Whereas in conventional medicine, there's often a specialist for every limb, every organ. And what I wanted to work out and what I did work out and and what Josh and I both do is figure out how the entire system can work together by looking at the root cause of where that cascade is beginning. I love it. And you know, you talk about it as like you being a cheerleader for other people's lives because you've gone through this, you've gotten the education. And even though somebody may not necessarily have Crohn's disease, you support and work with a lot of people and write and educate on Instagram, on articles, on other places to help people with gut issues and beyond. Before we get to beyond for a second, even if somebody doesn't have Crohn's disease, but they might have SIBO, they might have, you know, colitis, they might have another gut disorder, or even just, you know, constipation or just regular gut being upset, like their gut being upset. And they read your story and they're feeling like excited. And they're like, I would like a hundred percent reduction in symptoms. You know, I want to go through this journey. How do you help them even begin to process and take that first step? The very first step is recognizing that we absolutely can change the expression of our genes. And that's a huge thing because a lot of people dealing with these issues have been told for so many years that there's nothing you can do, learn to live with it, here's a pill. And 
we now know with so much research around epigenetics and the way I look at our genes. And, you know, I listened to your interview with, with Dr. Ben Lynch, who talks about the dirty genes. And I think of it as, you know, we have these breakers in our body. And I think of each gene as like a breaker. And we know that when your breaker, you blow a switch in your home, it's really easy to shut off the breaker and a lot harder to turn it back on. So I think of it as the disease process is shutting down those breakers and you start expressing disease in the body. Turning those back on takes a little more effort, but it's absolutely doable. And one of the biggest things that will trigger those breakers, trigger our genes to express disease is stress. And so that's no matter what you're dealing with and specific to digestive issues, learning how to process that stress and finding the tools that work for you to allow that to process out of the body. And one of the biggest issues is sleep because when we're chronically stressed or have digestive issues, our sleep becomes impaired. And when our sleep is impaired, we reduce the production of cytokines, the immune factors that you know regulate our immune system, which then makes us more susceptible to colds and flus and immunosuppressed conditions and hyperactive immune conditions like autoimmune. We get more sugar cravings. That further upsets the digestive system. And so we end up in this cycle that continues to contribute to an imbalanced microbiome. So a big part of healing any digestive issue is to process that stress and then you know, some of the obvious things like clean up the diet, getting rid of those processed foods, getting rid of foods that have chemicals in them, that have pesticides in them. And then we can also look, and these are actually some of the easiest things that we need to do is to look at the environmental triggers that will upset that microbiome. So having a higher chemical load will increase your risk of having digestive upset, whether it's, you know, day-to-day mechanical issues like IBS, so constipation, diarrhea, or more full-blown inflammatory conditions. But the high chemical load in our environment creates this burden in the body that affects the microbiome. And it's not just things like antibiotics. We know there's an overuse of antibiotics, but flame retardants in our furnishings, air fresheners, perfumes and colognes and personal care products. Triclosan is this crazy antimicrobial ingredient that we know of often in like hand sanitizers, but it's in different toothpaste brands. It's in mouthwash. It's in toothpastes. It's in yoga mats. Some fragrances. Exactly. And so that's like a huge contributor to an imbalance in the microbiome. And then, as I mentioned, you know, general poor diet, chemicals, pesticides, processed foods, processed food ingredients, GMOs. And along with that, we end up with an increase in food allergies and food intolerances that then further contributes to the upset in the microbiome. So that the health of the microbiome is the root of most health challenges that if we can start to resolve that, and unfortunately, it's not as simple as, you know, taking a daily probiotic or having your serving of yogurt or fermented food. That's definitely part of it. But, you know, dealing with stress, addressing sleep issues, getting the toxins out of the environment, and then, you know, happiness, which is, you know, a nice idea. But if you're miserable, you're like, oh, it's not that easy. But having a regular practice that brings forth gratitude, that you can feel contentment in where you're at today and and feel truly grateful, um, not just, you know, hashtag gratitude, but like really feeling it and having a practice that that brings you into the present moment and, and finding those places of happiness 
And maybe it's a moment in a day and then you can savor that moment and then that grows, but all of that together. So unfortunately, it's not as simple as, you know, eat gluten and dairy free and get out processed sugar and alcohol and all this will go away. That's definitely part of it. But there's, um, it's such a multi-prong approach. And unfortunately, the challenge is most people try one thing at one time and it doesn't work. They move on to another thing on its own. Oh, I tried to go gluten-free. It didn't work. I, I didn't you know feel any better. But there's these 10 other, 20 other things that are not being addressed, which actually might have more of an issue on their health than just maybe particularly gluten. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's also the basic lifestyle stuff like you know, drinking more water, sitting at a table to eat your meals intended for dining so that you're actually like going through that first stage of digestion that most people ignore, which is the cephalic phase, which is looking at your food and smelling your food and having that sensory experience before you even start eating, chewing. And, you know, you know, so few of us chew our food long enough to properly start the digestive process that happens in the mouth and we're not breathing. So, so it's like little things like, can we drink water? Can we take deep breaths? Can we sit at a table intended for dining? Like those are the easy ones that we can take on, but it's that multi-prong approach and the, everything is intertwined and works together. So help us understand, because for a lot of people who have heard about autoimmune conditions, maybe they have it, maybe a relative has it, maybe a child has it, make the clear connection Obviously, in your research and, and studying, you've understood now the deeper component that sort of um, we miss sometimes in modern medicine of where the originations of autoimmune is, is coming from. So can you help us understand that and how that relates to gut health? Absolutely. So there's typically three factors that create basically the perfect storm for autoimmune disease. There's like a leaky gut factors. So those junctions in the gut become loose. They should be tight and impermeable. In babies and infants, they're typically somewhat permeable until between 18 and 24 months, which is why people are often, who are conscious of this, are more aware of food introductions. And then ideally after the age of two, those junctions tighten and the gut becomes impermeable. In a situation of leaky gut, those junctions open again slightly. So in the simplest terms, foods can pass through undigested and your body will create antibodies or have an immune response to them that in a healthier person, there'll be minimal or no reaction. And as you become more and more compromised, you have more and more of a reaction to those foods. So there's the leaky gut component. There's environmental trigger. So whether it's an infection or a chemical or a some kind of environmental exposure or environmental trigger. And then there's an emotional trigger or a stress, an emotional stress. So when you have those three factors together, that basically is the perfect storm for an autoimmune condition for someone who is susceptible or has that in their genetic makeup. For different people, that, that perfect storm could result in a different type of suffering or condition. But as we were talking about autoimmune, those are sort of the three factors that, that contribute to it. So it's not just one thing that causes an autoimmune disease. There's those factors. So in my case, it may have been the stress of backpacking through Africa by myself. It could have been the fact that I just completed an extreme physical endurance challenge, drinking Gatorade and all kinds of garbage. It could have been also getting vaccinated, a high amount, five vaccines in one day. I'm 125 pounds. So that is a 
large amount for my body weight. And then, you know, a lifetime of, of anxiety and not knowing how to process it. So in my case, I had basically a perfect formula to develop an autoimmune disease. And, and that's sort of what, what people can look at in themselves if they suddenly develop something. They're like, Did I, do I have – you might not know if you have a leaky gut, but you might know if there was some sort of trigger in your life emotionally and, a, and some exposure physically. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you shared two things that I just want to highlight real quick. Um, I've talked to um, multiple um, women, especially who went through an extreme endurance challenge or were, you know, long distance runners or other things that just like a very taxing event on the body. And, and after that, not, not always immediately afterwards, but facing um, a, some, a, some sort of like a deep challenge and an autoimmune condition. So sometimes just like a major event, which could, could in a way wreak some, uh, I don't want to use trauma in the context of sort of how trauma is being used in society right now, but it's just a physically enduring event that puts a lot of load. And if there's underlining things that might be off in the body, they could end up getting exacerbated and you end up with a situation that's, 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 uh, blows into um, your immune system being compromised. Yeah. Uh, and I know Josh sees a lot of women postpartum who develop autoimmune diseases as well, because that is the biggest feat of a woman ever goes through is growing and delivering a human. Right. So if people are tracing through and thinking about their own history, um, which when you work with a functional medicine nutritionist or, or doctor or naturopathic doctor, a big part of what they're looking for is they're looking for where did this all start? What happened? And obviously- uh, Megan, you're doing such a great job of unpacking your story, and I hope that people are listening. Also, if you're suffering through something, even if it's not an autoimmune condition or a gut issue, you can start to trace back kind of key moments and events that happened that could have led to this. There's a second thing you mentioned, Megan, which was really fascinating, which was um, it's different. The 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 causes could be uh, slightly different, which means also the solutions are different. You know, you could have a, I remember Dr. Hyman would always say, you could have a hundred patients that have Crohn's disease and they all have a slightly different thing that needs to be uh, tweaked for them, but there's similarities along the way. No one person, even if they have the same diagnosis and disease, has the same exact root issues that somebody else had, even if there's patterns and, and components that are there. Absolutely not. And also, I think it's really important to address too that healing can be different things for different people. Not everyone will heal and then have a 100% elimination of symptoms. Just like diseases are going into the body is like peeling an onion, healing is basically putting those layers back on and different people will land at different places. And it could be a three-month process. It could be a 10-year process. It could be a lifetime process of learning and adjusting and rebalancing and really just focusing on you're doing your best that day. And, and I think that applies for all health. So a lot of people will, you know, you, you've talked a lot about different diets and, and you know, people will subscribe to the diet they believe healed them. So someone might switch to a vegan diet and have dramatic healing results and be like, this is what everyone needs to be eating. This is the only and best way. And someone could have dramatic results on a paleo or on a keto protocol. And the diet that heals us isn't necessarily and very rarely the diet that will 
sustain and maintain our health through our lifespan. And same with lifestyle practices. And I think that's really, really important for everyone to recognize that, you know, and it can be scary if something you did worked for you and you're like, I don't want to change it, but we're constantly evolving and recognizing that on a day-to-day basis, we may need to make some slight tweaks. And like Dr. Hyman said, a hundred people will have a hundred different root causes, a hundred different needs. And those needs are going to then continue to evolve throughout life. One thing that I really appreciate you sharing about when you first talked about your story is that you had to kind of go through a lot of different practitioners and go on the journey of hunting and finding. And I find that when people start to get familiar with this education of what's possible, um, the honest truth is that you know sometimes you have to dig in a little bit. Hopefully, we're making it a little bit easier with this podcast by highlighting some of the great practitioners that we have actual experience with and that people could work with. But a lot of times you have to dig and find that right person who can help you. And maybe one person helps you with one thing and they can only take you so far. And then you have to work with somebody else to help you on the next phase, especially when you have something like an autoimmune condition. What, what advice would you have for people in that sort of hunting process and that matchmaking process of, of how to find somebody, the right practitioner that can support them through their healing, healing journey? Absolutely. So my first advice to everybody is always get copies of every test you ever get done and do your best to learn how to read them yourself. And no one is going to be, you know, their own best diagnostic or anything like that, but understand what your results say. And, you know, when I got my biopsy, I'll never forget, it had a phrase that was chronic active inflammation. I was like, what does this mean? So And I looked it up and I'm like, this can't be possible. If you bump your finger, your finger doesn't stay swollen forever. You do things to help it heal. And so that's, you know, a lot of it when you start breaking down word by word, you'll get a general understanding of what your test results say. You can look up and see on the internet now, like there's so much more information available, but about optimal levels of nutrients and different kinds of things. So part of it is patient or client empowerment so that you have information that you can go in when you meet with practitioners and ask very specific questions that you are not at the mercy of your doctor or of your your natural healthcare provider they're working for you and so you can go in and and be confident in asking specific questions and the other thing is when recommendations are made by practitioners make sure they make sense to you about why they're making that recommendation. So if a practitioner gives you, you know, five different supplements to take, it's your responsibility to say, what is each one doing? How is this affecting my primary concern at the root cause? Or by what mechanism is this helping to heal or resolve the issue? And what astounds me, I mean, here in Canada, you know, our a lot of our primary care practitioners are paid for um, with our, by our taxes. We have amazing health care. But most natural healthcare practitioners are not. We're paying out of pocket for that. What it stands me is the number of people that will keep seeing a naturopath or a nutritionist or a functional medicine practitioner for years and years and continue developing or worsening different symptoms and conditions, which is the complete opposite of what the practitioner should be doing. So if you're working with someone and you're not getting results, you don't owe them anything. It's like people don't want to break up with their hairdresser, like it's going to hurt their feelings. If you're not getting the right haircut, you're going to go to another hairdresser. If you're not getting the healthcare you need and the results you want, and you're truly doing what the recommendations are and you understand 
why they're being recommended. If you're not getting the results, you have to move on and you should not feel bad for a second about moving on until you get someone who can help and work with you the way you need to be with the support you need so you get the results that you are putting in a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of money into getting. And yeah, you especially, might- Especially if they're not, you know, explaining to you, you know, sometimes of course things take time, but if they're not explaining to you, understanding, and even then still you have to trust your gut and say, okay, maybe this person just doesn't know. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't, they've come up against this. Maybe they just, you know, it's time for me to move on and go in a different direction and, and explore a little bit. How many times in your journey, you know, you talked about this first doctor in, in traditional medicine, uh, who said, there's no research for this. There's no research for that. And, you know, you obviously moved on from them, but how many other people have you had to move on from over, over the years just to get a, get a sense? Oh my goodness. A lot. I think the only one I haven't moved on from was Josh, who was the best practitioner I ever met. <laughs> you ended up, Josh, you had to end up marrying him. <laughs> exactly. I always say to people, because I recommend him, I say like, I'm not recommending him because he's my husband. He's my husband because he's the best at what he does. So the um, moral of the story is if you're single, you might marry your practitioner. Exactly. And <laughs> no, so Josh, what I was going to say was Josh and I actually held a digestive healing retreat together and we invited my gastroenterologist and I never heard from him. We wanted him to show up. Uh, but um, it's your right to understand why recommendations are being made. And in my experience, I was, I mean, I was really young and there wasn't nearly the volume of knowledge and patient empowerment that we see today. And I see it just in, you know, I, I teach a certification program in culinary nutrition. We have students from around the world. And right now it's the 10th run of the program over seven years. And the change in questions that students are coming with are so much more informed than they were five years ago. And it's not because the students are different. It's because there's such a depth of knowledge that's now widely available. So it's important to make sure you are understanding what's being recommended. And so in in my own experience, I was going and I, by the end of it, quite honestly, they'd ask me my story and I would just burst into tears. I was just so exhausted by the whole process and being challenged constantly. Um, a great thing people can do if you're in the process of going to practitioner to practitioners is, is to write out your health resume, you know, write out your own timeline. You you talked earlier about how people can sort of look back and, and address things in their life that may have happened. But if you can go back, you know, if your parents are around and ask, you know, what did I have as a kid that was constant? What did I have as a teenager? And then Hopefully by then you can pick up the story yourself, but to create that your own chronology so that when you're going to these practitioners and saying, you know, you can circle events being like, this was when my eczema started and this is when I stopped being able to sleep properly. And you might be able to actually figure out on your own when this stuff's happened, but it will provide a little more information for your practitioner to hopefully be able to give you the best uh, recommendations and the best customized program. I'm always a little wary of practitioners who, you know, promote themselves as having worked with tens of thousands of people. It's impossible in a lifetime to do that effectively. So, you know, getting practitioners who maybe worked with a few hundred and had great success with them is perhaps a little more reliable. Yeah. And when you put your story together, when you are organized, even getting copies of all the labs, all the things you did, I mean, these practitioners are human beings and a lot of them who are on the natural side, functional medicine side, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to run a practice. They're not covered by insurance. So some of them, you know, they're not out there making a ton of money. They're doing it mostly as like a labor of love. And 
that means sometimes offices and places are not always the best organized. And so the more organized you are, the more that you can get the maximum attention and focus from them on your journey. If you have it all bullet pointed and organized and all your labs in a Dropbox and, and that, it's, it's going to be easier for them to help you. Absolutely. I had an incident I had an incident very recently where I was sent and my doctor is great. I have a GP that I see every few years. Um and their office is great and very organized, but twice so far there have been other people's test results in my file. And I flag it with them and they're apologetic. And Josh has had people come in with test results and he's like, you've got the blood work of like a 90-year-old. And then they realize it actually is the blood work of a 90-year-old that's gotten switched. And so, you know, being your own best advocate is no matter how amazing your practitioner is, it's your responsibility. No one is going to take care of you better than you take care of yourself. And that's sort of your own set point that you need to elevate how well you care for yourself if you want others to to care for you as much. Yeah, and actually, uh, we just um, uh, we just created a course with uh, the folks at Wanderlust. They started a new company called uh, Commune OneCommune.com, and it's a course from Dr. Hyman called How to Hack Your Healthcare. And basically, additional practical tips. You know, we always talk about how important it is to be financially literate. And sometimes there's this push in health and wellness when we tell people, okay, this is what your labs mean. This is what this means. There's some people that are out there, they're like, what? It's a doctor's job to talk about all that. Yeah, it's a doctor's job to go through that and walk you through it. But if you are not basic health proficient in understanding what this means, it doesn't mean that you're going to prescribe yourself medicine. You can't even do that. But it doesn't mean that you're going to come up with a complete protocol, but you should at least know what it is and be more proficient because the system is just so much pressure on the system. It's just hard for people to get the attention that they need on their healing journey. It's the ones who fight for it a little bit. I don't know if I want to use that word, but it really is sometimes fighting for it. You have to fight to make sure that you get the level of care that you need in, in your journey. Absolutely. And, you know, no disrespect to, to doctors at all. They are under tremendous stress and pressure to see as many patients as they can and their time is is on, in high demand. And so to make the most of your appointment times going in with this information can actually be helpful or being able to leave something behind if need be or send something in advance if need be. And never be afraid to talk to your practitioner and say, what is the best way for me to work with you? How, what, what's your ideal patient or client? Um, so how can I be that so you can be the ideal practitioner for me? When I asked you about your your journey and the crucial things that played a role in your healing process and, and helping you, um, there was a, a bunch of different components. But one of the things that you, you stressed on was just our relationship with, with um, food. And so many of us grow up with a relationship that is um, negative with food, or we think of a food in terms of like good and bad, and we got rewarded with junk food, or we hear, you know, people grew up with the idea of, of diets and what is a diet and all the negative connotations, and it's restrictive and it's this and that. And you wrote a book called The Undiet. Tell me about why you wrote that and what, what you wanted to achieve with that book in helping people change their perspective when it came to switching their lifestyle in this uh, direction of, 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 of health and wellness. Absolutely. So the mission with Undiet was to break down a lot of the misconceptions 
that we have around what makes for a quote unquote healthy diet or the healthiest diet. My editor approached me um, about writing a book. She discovered me. She was between jobs with publishers and I was on a television show and she'd seen me and followed my work a bit. So she'd approached me and wanted me to write a diet book. And I was so reluctant because I'd already known, and this was pretty early in my career. I started writing my book. It's, oh my gosh, eight years ago now, my first book. I was so reluctant because I already knew just in the short span of time I'd been in the health field, how my own diet had evolved. And so we played with the idea of how do we communicate the fact that there actually isn't a diet that I can recommend to people. There's guidelines that will definitely help generally speaking. So with Undiet, what I wanted to do was to effectively and in an entertaining and engaging way inspire people to become their own best health experts by following some very basic principles like the idea that calories don't count, that you know a calorie measure is not also the same thing as whether a food is good for us or not. Uh, I wanted to stress how fundamentally important it is to cook as many of our meals as possible from scratch and that this doesn't have to be an all-consuming three hours in the kitchen for every meal kind of situation. So the cookbook follow-up is that they're very simple, foolproof recipes that you can make, that you can batch prep. I wanted ultimately to inspire people that though going in through the tract of diet, you know, it's called undiet. I I don't love the title, but you know, we, we compromise on things sometimes, but going in through this idea of undieting our lives. So it's not just breaking the rules of the conventional diet, but also of the lifestyle of looking at the areas in our lives that bring us joy that we're failing to give any time or nurturing to. So it creates an all-encompassing lifestyle that incorporated everything that I had discovered and learned in healing and that broadens it to allow for people to pick up what they're ready to pick up when they're ready and optimally keep it going in a sustainable way. I love that. And I think that unpacking those beliefs is so important because there's so much misinformation that we've had um, over the years. You know, in fact, there was uh, uh, our team had circulated this uh, Instagram post that uh, this author um, and uh, I believe it's a PhD. Um, it's a PhD who's also an author who writes a lot about uh, working out. And he tagged Dr. Hyman on something that Dr. Hyman had written which was like uh, all calories are are not the same, you know. And we've been told for years that it, when it comes to diet, which we often equate with weight loss, that it's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. You know, just it doesn't matter if you have soda or a cucumber or you have this or that. And in this long rant, he was like, you know, you guys just do not understand that this is just basic science. All calories are the same. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all about eating less and working out more. And there's myths that are out there like this. If that was the case, you know, we wouldn't be where we are as a as a society. So going exactly, I say that the proof is in the population. The proof is in the population. I love that. And so there's almost like a re-education that has to happen. And um, I love that you did that with uh, your books. You also have a, have a cookbook and cooking is such a big part of this too, because everybody wants to know like, well, the first question that I hear people ask, especially when they get familiar with this whole space is, 
okay, well, what the heck do I eat? Like, what do I actually eat? So tell us about the cookbook and your spin on some of the recipes that you wanted to include inside of there. Um, and, and especially how, you know, families, how, how it really can play a role for like families, um, when it comes to them changing their diet. Yes, absolutely. One of the things I wanted to ensure in the cookbook was that the recipes were were really accessible. So 99% of the ingredients can be found in any major supermarket. And I'm not a chef. I don't pretend to be a trained chef. My culinary skills in terms of like knife skills and technique are pretty shoddy, which is, you know, I'm okay admitting that even though I run a cooking school um, because it's about how we create healthful, delicious, simple, and beautiful meals. And that doesn't necessarily require fancy skills. So I wanted it all to be very, very accessible. That if someone said, you know, I really want to start eating healthier, where do I start? That I could give them 10 recipes out of my book and be like, make these 10 and then we'll move on to the next 10. So the recipes that people recognize, for example, we have a shepherd's pie. Instead of more of the conventional, you know, frozen vegetables and meat and mashed potato topping and a gravy, it's, you know, fresh chopped vegetables that includes sweet potatoes and different types of vegetables. The topping is could either be a cauliflower mash or a millet and cauliflower mash. We have what I call dressed to the nine sweet potatoes that are stuffed sweet potatoes. But instead of typical, I think what white potatoes have are like, you know, cheese and sour cream and bacon and all that kind of stuff which, you know, rightfully might have its place, but uh, we do it with sweet potatoes and sauteed beans or meat with kale and some squeeze of lemon and a tahini dressing and sprouts to top it off. So they're not fully foreign foods or weird foods. They're things you know of that maybe you just haven't assembled in quite that way. There's a lot in there that allows for customization. So whether it's customization by the person cooking it or for the family. So we know that our kids will get more involved in their meal or be more open to eating it if they're part of the of the making process. So lots of options where you can choose your toppings or choose your fillings or that sort of thing to get to get the whole family engaged in it. Sorry. Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, go ahead. ahead, I was going to say that that, – so a lot of the the recipes that are in there are just so doable. They can be frozen. They can be made in advance. And it's not this elitist, healthy cooking that I think we've come to sort of associate with eating well. It's They're hearty. They're full meals. And every recipe has the option to either make it grain-free and protein-powered with meat or do keep it vegan so that it's fully up to the person to determine the best food philosophy that suits them. The one thing that runs throughout is that there's no ingredients of any of the ingredients. They're all 100% whole. You know, you've shared about your autoimmune condition. I know that when people start to – people who have autoimmune conditions are, are beginning to uh, work with their diet – it's often tough because they they might be even more restrictive than somebody who um, is dealing with other conditions that are there, depending on some of their triggers and testing and different stuff that they've done with their doctor. Um, is your book a great book for people who are dealing with autoimmune conditions too? And, and are there any other uh, recipe books that are out there that navigate the unique kind of challenges of uh, people with those conditions? There's... Again, I don't think there's one book that's going to be the exact right book for every single person, you know? So it, it's hard to say. I think that following the guidelines in my book, and there's there's dozens of, of you know, whole food, plant-based or paleo-type cookbooks that will all be beneficial. 
with each individual, it's what are your individual triggers? What do you like and what you don't like? And how can we increase the foods that you like and really focus on the things you can have and less on things you can't have? But I think in most cases, and, and I go through this with my students a lot, is that, you know, the basic healing diet is universal. It's looking at unprocessed foods and cooking as much as we can from scratch. And then if you want to get into the intricacies of it, or you have a client or a, you know someone listening who's like, I'm ready to take on more, then you can start to get into, you know, am I going to soak my nuts before I eat them? Or am I going to do these other extra things? So my book offers those kinds of tips and stuff, but it really doesn't need to be so complicated that you, you actually even need a book, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I think that you can, you know, if you eliminate processed foods, the typical shop from the perimeter, buy organic, so you're really reducing that chemical load. And I can't stress this enough that people are like, oh, but it's more expensive. It's like, well, you're sick. And if you're sick, your health needs to be your priority. And you can't, it's a lot more, I don't want to say you can't, but it's going to be a lot more challenging to heal if you're still putting toxins in the top um, when you're trying to clean them out the bottom, literally. So, you know, really adhering to that can and, and does make a difference. So it will never just be the food or just be a book, even though I'd love to tell everyone, get my book, it's going to heal everything. Um, that mental component is, is so important, managing the serotonin levels and and getting those moments of peace and quiet. And maybe those moments of peace and quiet can actually become the time you're in the kitchen cooking. And so you're you're putting good vibes into your food too has a lot of power. Do you think that somebody can get better without learning how to cook? Just being honest, you know, because so many people are like, ah, I just, I never was taught how to cook. I'm not into it. I'm busy. And just asking super straightforwardly, can people get better, you know, if they have an autoimmune condition or deep gut issues or other stuff, can they get better without learning how to cook? That's a tough question. I, I have two answers for you. So I think that I want to say no. And I don't necessarily know that my answer is no, you can't get better if you don't cook. But I believe that if someone isn't willing or isn't able to make the time in their life to cook or be open to that, then I feel like there's likely going to be other areas of their lifestyle that they're also not going to be open to modifying or changing. You know, to, to heal is a commitment. And at times, it's a commitment that takes more time than other periods in life. So if someone says, oh, I don't have time to cook, I'm just too busy, they're probably also not taking time for gentle exercise. This isn't going for a run or doing some high endurance training, but this is going for a gentle walk or doing you know, gentle yoga that's not like a hot yoga hour and a half sweat session, but like gentle healing yoga that's gonna, or meditation, something that's gonna put you into the parasympathetic nervous system state where your body's able to heal. I feel like that that's going to be more of an issue. It's it's almost like it's uh it's like almost like if you don't make time for the cooking there's so many other things that are there it's like what are you not making time for? Exactly. I think, I think the other practical thing is depending on how sick somebody might be you go out it's just so difficult even though we have a lot of healthy restaurants and other stuff you know they're still using foods that might be a trigger they're still using oils that could be complicating they're, and and it's more expensive and it takes more time to go and eat out. You know, it takes more time to go and eat out and go and pick up, you know, even for a lot of times fast food, you know, that people are, are going out and getting. And so the challenge is almost like 
it's like all the other skill sets are built on top of, of, of cooking. Yeah, exactly. And the other component with the cooking and with eating out is that as soon as you're eating out, you have no idea what's in your food. You don't know the oil that's being used. You don't know if there's cross-contamination, depending on how sensitive you are to something. And when you're healing, when you're actively looking to resolve a health issue, what you the reality is that you might be required to make all of your meals from scratch for two months, let's say, or three months. Like maybe that's your acute healing period to do this. And maybe it requires you to take some time off work or to release some of your obligations so that you can really commit to this new full or part-time commitment of getting well. And the immediate response whenever I say that to someone is, oh, I can't do that. Like I need to work. I've got my mortgage. I've got car payments. I've got my family. I've got all of this. But if you consider that as basically insurance for a lifetime, so if you can do that for a short set period of six weeks or eight weeks and really commit to following a protocol that either a practitioner has given you or that you've worked out for yourself and doing it 100%, you're going to get, in most cases, a higher success rate than doing it sort of halfway for a year or two years. And you also end up feeling like compromised or like you're missing out for a longer period of time when you just kind of like dilly dally and like dabble here and there. Like I mostly eliminated this and I'm mostly doing this. It, you know, my feeling is if you can do it full on for a set period of time and then maybe add a few things back in or, you know, then do it sort of more halfway as a maintenance stage your success, your, your chance of success are going to be a lot greater. So when it comes to cooking, I say make the time for it. Make the time for it. Commit to maybe even start with one week where 100% of your meals are from scratch. And if you're like, oh, that's easy, try a month. And you can absolutely get food services. You can get private chefs. You can get, you know, our graduates, culinary nutrition experts will do private chefing and private cooking and create meal plans to specific needs for people. But you know, ultimately we need to take some of this on ourselves so that we can actually understand what is going into our body, what's going on in our body, how we're feeling with each thing we're trying. When we sit down to meditate and we're feeling super anxious during meditation, maybe we notice afterwards, you know what, I'm a little bit lighter. We've we've tapped into that, you know, reducing that gray matter in the amygdala, the seed of fear, and we're now feeling a little bit lighter because of that practice. Or we've created this meal and we smelled the cinnamon cooking and we smelled the garlic and, and the onions being sauteed and we sat down and we shared this meal with someone over a nice conversation and afterwards we feel satiated from that meal and, and it's all part of, of the requirement to slow down. So if we need eight hours of sleep to maintain our health, we're going to need a lot more rest to regain our health. And so I don't have time for cooking isn't going to cut it if the real objective is to get well and to sustain that health ongoing. I want to talk a little bit about family and, and cooking. Uh, Josh, when he was on the podcast, talked a little bit about the great meals you guys do and some of the hacks that are there. It's always great to have uh, both sides expand on a little bit. What What are some of the tips your mom and uh, you guys have a um, a son? And uh, what are some of the tips that you have for uh, families with kids and cooking and just the complexities that sometimes enter that, especially with 
you know, to use just what is the common phrase that we use in society, like a picky eater um, or somebody who, you know, or a child who only wants to eat a particular type of uh, uh, food or ingredient and does not have like an expansive palate. What are some of the tips that you might have when it comes to families and cooking? Yes. So the earlier you start, the easier it is. So our son is 17 months old and we've already even, you know, I got a whole bunch of Yulsees in my pregnancy and what I was planning on doing during pregnancy, during childbirth, postpartum. And then we got the Yulsees with our kids and what he would or wouldn't eat with our, with our son, Finley. And so far with him, we introduced the I don't want to call them the worst foods, but some stronger tasting foods early on when he was less selective. So he was eating. And I I listened to Josh's interview with you and he said that we fed him anything and everything, which is actually quite the opposite of what we did. We fed him very specific foods, but maybe not the typical um, baby food. So, you know, we gave him liver and sardines and sauerkraut juice and sauerkraut once he was eating more solids. And so we got him all of those foods in early. And now he's, you know, 17 months. He's a little more selective. You know, he has his very favorite foods. He loves chicken. He loves sweet potatoes. He loves avocados. Uh, those are like his ultimate. So that, you know, if that's as bad as it gets with him, I think we're doing okay, right? Like he's never eaten a noodle. He doesn't know what bread is yet. And it's not necessarily that, you know, they're all terrible foods, but we know that he may only become more selective. And if he knows that there's that as a fallback and if kids know that if they resist hard enough, uh, you will give in and give them their their cheese sandwiches or peanut butter and toast or whatever it is that, that your child loves. So we um, affirm from the start that, that we're not going to substitute. And I had interviewed a few years ago, Marian Nessel, who's, you know, a lead nutrition instructor an, a lead professor and an author. And um, she had said to me, children will never, never self-starve. And that's has sort of stuck in my head that I feel like inherently children are going to be selective. I never use the word picky. I use like selective. And they're exploring their palate and their palates are always changing and they'll become more sensitive to certain tastes during different times. And we can introduce foods six or seven or 10 times. And our son went through a phase where he would eat tons of fish. And right now he's not eating fish. That doesn't tell me that he's never going to eat fish again. It's that right now he's not eating it. But there was one meal where he we tried the liver and he was not having it. And I was like, okay, let me give him something else. And Josh was like, are you sure we should start that? I'm like, I'm just I'm swapping the liver for a venison burger. I think we're okay. Like it's still awesome. He's still getting a full full depth of nutrients. Um, and we're just really mindful. Like he could eat bananas for the rest of his days. And so we give him a banana maybe once, maybe twice a week, but it's never like the habit every time he wakes up from a nap, he gets a banana. Uh, so different days he'll have different snacks and we can't try and really change up the meals. And the other thing is that often parents um, are afraid to give their kids too much flavor. So they're feeding, we're feeding kids like really neutral, bland food. And we don't like to eat bland food as adults. We like a little bit of fat, let's say melted ghee and some sea salt on broccoli is going to make it a lot more palatable. Well, kids can have that too. And babies can have that too. And our son loves, like I make a, I have a recipe on my blog for a clean butter chicken um, with garam masala and curry powder and 
And so like he'll, he loves that or a red Thai curry with cod, he'll eat that. So giving them flavor rich foods will help to diversify that palate. Of course, it has to start with us. If we're just eating, you know, straight up meat and potatoes every single night or, you know, a vegan alternative to that, um, we're not going to have that diverse palate. So we can't expect our children to also. So we have to start first and and just slowly introduce it and be okay if they don't want to eat something one night um, or, you know, they've been eating the same breakfast every day and then suddenly they don't want to eat it anymore. Well, you know, they're telling you something. They just don't want that right now. And then it's our opportunity to change that up. But we never, we never will, you know, oh, he's not eating breakfast. Let's just give him a banana because we know he'll eat it because I don't, I don't want to start that habit or that pattern. And so if he doesn't eat it, you'll just Will you just try something else, or will you just say, "Okay, he's not eating this right now. Fine, he does. He's, he's just not eating right now." Is it like what? Yeah, often. Yeah, oftentimes we'll either give him a little bit more of whatever he was eating on his plate. We feed him in a bowl, so I, I've never. I don't want to again. Like we're trying to figure out, and this is all one big experiment, obviously, because he's just seventeen. Yeah, minutes. and everybody's just doing their best, and then one kid is completely different than the other kid when the yeah. number two comes. Absolutely, and- absolutely, and the parents have to do what whatever they can handle too. Like it, being a parent is terrifying. Like you're like your child is the biggest experiment of your life, and you don't know if this is gonna. I think like we're just going through life trying to not damage our child. Like I think we all have stuff we carry from our own childhoods that we're like, how do we not have that happen or whatever? But so we we give Finn his meals in a bowl. It's a bamboo bowl. So there's no divider. So all the food sort of basically gets mixed together. And sometimes he'll pick out what he wants from that bowl. And if he doesn't want to eat anything else, then we might give him a little bit more of the things he's eaten. But lately, you know, this week, he hasn't really been into eating a ton for dinner. So he's – and sometimes it's his favorites and sometimes it's not. And I'm just like, he just must not be that hungry. And that's okay too. If he was hungry enough, I think he would eat it. And the nights that he doesn't eat as much, then he just doesn't. Um, he's still breastfeeding. So I, I know that he has that at the very least. He's getting the nutrients he needs. Uh, but again, like he's 17 months. I might listen to this back when he's two months old, two years old and be like, oh, I was so naive back then thinking this was going to establish some kind of pattern. <laughs> yeah. But all I can speak to is what I know today. Yeah. That's so true. Speaking of food, tell us about the the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. What is it? Who's it for? And, and why did you create it? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think like an hour ago when we first started chatting, uh, I had gone through nutrition school and learned so much about the nutrients and sort of these this piecemeal um, information about health, but still didn't know how to cook when I finished. And I knew that to sustain my health, I needed to learn how to cook with all the ingredients that I was learning about that were healing for the body. And I became self-taught in the kitchen and just started, you know, I'd learn about the health benefits of kale. I'm like, well, a raw kale salad is not delicious. How do we make kale delicious and palatable? How do I make brown rice be awesome? How do I start making all these foods I'd learned about um, delicious and simply? And so what I realized was missing was the cooking skills. So I taught myself the cooking skills and started teaching small cooking classes here that were ideally, they were, they were based on community with, I wanted people to come together to eat how I explained was a healthful way to eat, where we sit down together, have nice conversation and share a meal. So I started teaching those types of cooking classes here in Toronto. 
and we started putting videos online and that demand grew and then it kept growing and growing. And then we started putting these courses online to teach people how to cook this way because it just wasn't there and wasn't available. And it's still not surprisingly widely available. And so in 2014, uh, I, I put a bunch of courses together and launched the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. I followed that up by basically restructuring, creating a whole new curriculum, launching the Academy of Culinary Nutrition with the objective to teach the teachers. So our flagship is a certification program in culinary nutrition where we are teaching people around the world, not just about culinary nutrition, about the healing properties of, of foods, about therapeutic foods, about traditional diets, about you know developing a personal food philosophy and meal plans and recipe creation and workshop creation, all of that, but also empowering our graduates to then be able to go out and teach. So we now have 1,800 graduates in 57 countries, and we also recently launched a certification program for our instructors to graduate instructors so that we also have 130, over 130 instructors in 14 countries teaching specific culinary nutrition classes so that we can get this information out to everybody who needs and wants it so that we can all be empowered to know how to cook and eat for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, and really bring back a lot of the knowledge and skills that have been lost over the last two to three generations. And, and not only is it so just important for you know feeling good, it's even more important. Again, going back to what we were sharing before, you know, this was the foundation of what started your journey. Of course, there was so many other things. I guess if you could argue anything, really, first it's like mindset and emotional health, and really kind of you know doing that. But then in terms of practical healing components, it's really starting with, it all starts with food. It all, it starts and ends with food and which is so amazing because it's so delicious. Like we love eating and we should love eating and it shouldn't be stressful and it shouldn't cause us pain. And so if we can learn or relearn how to cook and eat and enjoy food the way human beings were intended to, uh, it's powerfully healing, not just physically, but but emotionally. And it brings together communities and it brings together families. And, you know, it could be said there's nothing more powerful or more healing than sitting down at a table for a beautiful home-cooked meal with people you love and sharing that experience. Mm, I love that. And you can find out more information at culinarynutrition.com. Uh, Megan, where else can people find you online and how do they check out your social and all the other good links? Absolutely. So I have my own personal website at megantelpner.com. I write a weekly article, usually causing a little bit of trouble, asking some questions that, you know, about conventional foods and those kinds of things. Um, and I'm on Instagram at megantelpner. And those are basically where, where I'm most active. I love it. And you have a great Instagram page. You're always posting cool photos of the family and the food that you're eating and the stuff you're up to and a lot of mindset, you know, a lot of mindset because mindset is so key and plays such a crucial role in this. Oftentimes, obviously it's not this type of choice, but if I had to choose between mindset and food, I'd always pick mindset. But of course, when you do invest in your mindset, you're like, well, why don't I make the change into my food too? Because that's going to actually have my physical body feeling at its best, but it's the mindset piece that kind of keeps you going and doesn't have you feel like, you know, anxiety and I should be doing this now. And this expert says this and that, you know, it's the mindset piece that has you trust your own intuition. And I love the fact that you write a lot about that. Thank you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the one last thing I want to just mention is, is about that mindset and the idea that if we can use our health challenges, um, not as necessarily a challenge, but as that opportunity to expand and evolve ourselves. And that will be, that, that does require that mindset and then the choice to improve our lifestyle and the choices we make every single day. And it, and as you said, it starts with the attitude we take towards what we're dealt with on a daily basis. And, and to prove our lifestyle, but others too, look how you, I mean, I know you know this, but for the audience that's listening, it's like you took this disease that you were diagnosed with, this uncurable disease that you were diagnosed with, and you made it your life's work. And it's like your, your you know, this thing that was something that was potentially quote unquote wrong with you, you've now turned into an entire motivation for not only healing yourself, but creating a business, inspiring other people. So if anybody who's listening, you know, that's a beautiful thing that you can take into your own journey. There's sometimes we're so harsh on our body and why did I go through this and why did I go through that? But maybe there's a reason, maybe there's something that you're meant to create. Maybe there's something you're meant to do and inspire and help others that are out there that are also suffering. And Megan, you do that so well. So I just want to thank you for all the great work you're doing, the education. And I so appreciate you coming on the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.